But it's so, so cold in here this morning, but you've got your, got your tea and coffee. So we'll do our best. Okay, Galatians 5 and 6, he's talking here about flesh and spirit, isn't he? But let's just set the context. He's writing to new converts in Galatia, chapter 1, verse 2. He says, I'm writing unto the churches of Galatia. Now, those early converts would have been comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And what was happening was that a group of uh, Jewish false teachers had come into these new ecclesias, new churches, and were trying to persuade the Gentiles that they must be circumcised. So chapter 6, verse 13, they desire to have you circumcised. So Paul is writing, really, to uncircumcised Gentiles. And he makes a really huge thing about the, the danger of, of going back to keeping the law as a basis for salvation. Now, why is he making this huge deal? Let's get clear what Paul's gospel was, the, the gospel. The, the good news is the good news of grace. That is, that God has given us a gift, and that is salvation. And if we believe, then we will be saved. And we show that belief, of course, by, by being baptized, by you know, faith without works is dead. But his point is that the essence is faith. It's not that if you do this list of things and don't do that list of things, then you will be saved. No. God is giving us a gift. Grace. That's what the word grace basically means. A, a gift. A free gift. And in all our human experience, when we're given something, there is normally an expectation that you are going to respond in a certain way. America gives aid. The EU gives aid to this country. But there's an expectation, isn't there? That, that NATO can, can have their troops on the border, that they can overfly uh, the, the Russian-Latvian border, etc., etc. There is an expectation that you're going to do something. You love your kids, but you kind of expect something. Pure grace, whereby you give something to somebody and say, this is yours, because I just thought up this idea to be kind to you. This is really outside our experience. And that's why a lot of languages struggle with translating this idea of, of grace. Uh, I mean, in Eastern European languages, the word charity tends to be used for, for grace, but it's not actually quite like that. The, the idea is a free gift that I give you this for nothing. Do you believe me? If you believe it, you can have it. All you've got to do is say yes in one sense. This is what Paul calls the good news of grace that we will be saved, that you and I will live forever because of what Jesus did. Now, do we believe it? If we believe it, we will be saved. It is actually as simple as that. But it's actually very difficult to believe in this because everything within us cries out against that. Well, what have I got to do? What's the catch? You know, you're walking around a supermarket and some girl comes up to you with a leaflet or with a bit of perfume or something and says, you, would you like this free gift? And you think, hey, yeah, and what's the catch? So what do I have to do? What do I have to buy now? What do you expect of me? This life. And so when we encounter the grace of God, this is something very new for us. And it's a beautiful thing. Peter talks about the manifold grace, the, the many-colored grace of, of God that, that shines in so many ways. Once we've really engaged with this, 
This radically transforms our lives. This empowers us to forgive. With no expectation of, or demand of, of repentance or whatever, this empowers us to look at society and think, how can I help that person? Hey, you, walking down the street, what can I do for you? What could I give you? This is a totally new way of approaching life, approaching ourselves, approaching family life, approaching everything. It's absolutely radical. And always there is a desire within human beings to say, no, 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 that's too good. That's too good to be true. And we're very weak in faith. Faith doesn't come easy to us. And so to believe in that actually demands an awful lot. It's almost too good news. It's almost too good to believe. And that's the challenge of believing in the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. That Jesus will come, establish his kingdom, and you and I will be there if you believe in it. If you can believe that, if you can believe God's grace, you'll be there. And so here in Galatians, we're seeing a, a typical, I think, response to this. People saying, eh, no, 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 give me something to do, give me a list of rules. And this is why. Churches that, that, that come out with lists of rules, this thou shalt do and this thou shalt not do, are so popular. Roman Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, people love this. Give me some rules. What have I got to do? Uh, and, you know, when they asked that to Jesus, he said, believe in, in John 6. What, what can we do that we might work the works of God? Believe, he said. Uh, and it's a real struggle. It, it may, we may think that our struggles are in our employment, with our health, with this, without the other. But actually, the greatest struggle, the greatest difficulty, the, the, the hardest mountain to climb is simply this, to believe that you and I will live forever in God's kingdom. And that is where the joy, peace, etc. of true Christianity comes from. From believing in that most simple reality, that God so loved you and I, that he gave his son to die for us so that we should not perish, but that we might live eternally. So then, getting back here to, to, to Galatians, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast in the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free, and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In other words, this whole idea that here's your list of do's and don'ts, that, he says, is, is bondage. It's a yoke. And he's alluding, of course, to how the Lord Jesus said that his, his yoke is very, very light. We have been made free. He says, absolutely, genuinely free. And that means that we are saved. If you like, theoretically, we could turn around and say, well, okay, I believe, so I'll be saved. So I can do what I want. Well, <laughs> you could say that, but that would really imply that you don't really believe the wonder of this grace. Because if you do, if you've really grasped it, then you can't be passive to that. You can't just say, oh, okay, fine, so now oh, okay, I'm going to be saved. I'm just going to carry on living my life as I did before. No, once you've engaged with this, once you've encountered it, you can never again be passive to it. You're going to actually do something radically about it. Uh, and that is the whole good news of, of the gospel. So then, he goes on. Uh, and he says that, um, therefore, circumcision 
does not, does not matter. It, it's not uh, an issue one way or, or the other. And I want you to notice how strongly he criticizes the idea of being justified by, by works. He says a, a strange thing in, uh, in chapter 5, verse 12. He says in the, in the Old English, I would they were cut off which trouble you. And the modern English versions say that he wishes they would emasculate themselves. That is, that they would cut off their male organ. Now, in the ancient languages, there were no expletives. If you wanted to curse somebody or say something really bad, you called somebody a donkey or something like that, or, or you, you said something like Paul has said here. It's rather like here we are in, in Latvia, as uh, some of you will know, Latvian, Lithuanian, they don't have expletives. They don't have bad words. If a Latvian wants to swear, he, he swears in Russian, or these days it's cool to do it in English. There's no list of bad words like there is in, let's say, Russian in English. You have to make up uh, some sort of uh, situation that you put another person in. That's cursing them. Now, here in Galatians 5 verse 12, I think we have the nearest, the nearest to an expletive anywhere in the Bible. People reading this would have thought, wow. Paul, how could you say that? How could you tell a guy to go, like, cut off his willy? That, that's, that's just, like, expletive. Incidentally, when we read that Peter cursed and swore, it doesn't mean that he, he used expletives. It means that he called down upon himself curses from God if he had ever known Jesus. Like, he, said, he would have said things like, may I be condemned at the last day if I ever knew Jesus. It doesn't mean he used expletives. That's just in passing. So then, why would Paul get so carried away about this that he like uses an expletive that would have made people, uh, I was going to say adjust their specs, but uh, it made their hair stand up anyway. It really would have got people's attention. Why? It's because this whole thing is so important. And he, he talks it again in, uh, in verse 7. He says, these people who, who tell you you've got to keep rules, they hinder you that you should not obey the truth. What does he mean by obeying the truth? The truth is quite simply that we are saved by grace. That is the truth, the, the ultimate reality. And as I say, he, he talks in these very, very tough ways about it. He opens the letter by saying that you've been taught another gospel. Another gospel. It's that strong. He's not saying this is just a, a variation, this is just a point of view. Uh, he's saying look, this is absolutely wrong. And so you can see why he's emphasizing this, because it's so difficult to, to grasp the essence of Christianity that's different to that of any other religion. That is that grace is what saves us, that God has just chosen us here on this little planet in the middle of this colossal cosmos and said, well, not in the middle of it, probably on the edge of it, but anyway, he chose this little planet and out of all the life forms and all the people that have lived throughout history, he chose you and me. And said, so, look, I just thought up this wonderful plan for you, Duncan or whoever, and I would like to, to give it to you. Do you believe me? If you believe me, it's for true. It's for real. And that's so wonderful that anything, anything that says, uh, actually, no, that's not actually quite how it was. Actually, you see, you've got to keep all this, uh, all this list of laws. That is destroying something that is so beautiful. 
And that's why Paul says this is not the truth, this is not the gospel. And when you read in, in what we just read there in chapter 5, he talks a lot about flesh and spirit and about the, the conflict between them. And he says in chapter 5, verse 17, the flesh lusts against the spirit, spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one, the one to the other. 19, he talks about the works of the flesh, da-da-da, then the fruit of the spirit is this. And then he says, 18, but if you be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. We expect him to say, if you're led of the spirit, you are not under the flesh. And I think that, certainly in the Greek text, that's the expectation that is built up. He's going to say, but you're not under the spirit, you're under the flesh. Because he's talked all the time about this opposition between spirit and flesh. But here he makes the opposition between spirit and law. Why does he do that? Because it's not that there was anything the matter with the law of Moses in itself. The law was perfect. The law was holy, just, and good, uh, as he says in, in Romans. But <clears throat> the point is, legalism, that, that is thinking that we can be saved by obeying law, any law, is actually to be equated with the flesh. And that, that's a, a very strong thing to say. But he wants us to be saved. And he knows that by trying to keep any legal code, we are going to fail. And we have already failed. We've already sinned. So what's the way out? If, we, if salvation is by keeping a legal code, we've already failed. So then, just one sin leads to death. As he said, you break one part of the law, you've broken it all. Evidence, Adam and Eve, one sin, uh, which I think the record almost uh, paints as a little sin. Not that it was a little sin, but uh, you think, well, all right, so they, they ate the fruit. Yeah, big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. Look what happened. That's the whole point. One sin leads to death. That's it. So then, we've already broken the law. It's no good having a steel will and us here in this room holding hands with each other and with an iron will promising each other, okay, we're never going to sin again. Now, it's not like that. Even if we were all so strong and we didn't, we already have sinned, so that's, that's it. Death. No matter how good you are afterwards, that's what you did. So then... He says in verse 8, in this context, a little bit of yeast leavens the whole loaf. That is, once you start this thinking about legalism, it's very attractive and it spreads very, very, very quickly. So, it's very attractive to want to keep laws. It's so attractive that it spreads so easily and we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of that. Of course, he, he warns us in verse 13, uh, don't use your liberty as an occasion or a, a launching pad for the flesh. Don't say, oh great, you know, we're, we're free now, we can, we're going to be saved anyway, oh great, I just go and sin. No, if we are to say that, we have missed the point that if we believe in this, really believe, and don't forget that the condition is that you've got to believe in it, if you believe in it, then you will not think like that. You will sell your soul for grace. You will sell your soul for God and, and for his son. And we will try to, to replicate in our own lives the work that Jesus did. Chapter 5, verse 14, he says, The law of Moses is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
But he's elsewhere used that idea of the law being fulfilled when he talks about the death of Jesus on the cross, that when Jesus died, the law was fulfilled. Here he says the law is fulfilled if you love your neighbor as yourself. So then, when Jesus died, that was the ultimate pattern of loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you go on to chapter 6, verse 2, he says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So, to, to carry each other's burdens is to fulfill the law of Christ. The law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So then, Jesus fulfilled the law by dying on the cross, loving his neighbor, if you like, and bearing others' burdens. How did he bear others' burdens? Well, in a physical sense, he carried the cross. That was, the carrying of the cross was the carrying of our burdens. And that is what led him to fulfill the law. And so Paul is saying, don't leave the cross of Christ, as it were, as an icon on the wall, as an idea, a picture, if you like, that you look at or you read about in the Bible and think, oh yeah, that's, that, that's cool, that's wonderful. No. It's as if something jumps out of that black print on white paper as we read the, the record of the crucifixion and says, you are to live like this. I mean, he said so himself when he says, pick up your cross and follow me in this life of cross-carrying. What does it mean to carry the cross? It doesn't just mean to put up with inconvenience, maybe from weakness, ill health, handicap, difficulty in life that's come upon you, poverty. More specifically, to carry the cross means to carry others' burdens. It means to actually go out there and pick something up. It means to bear with the difficult, to be patient with the irritating. To not give up on people, just as God and his son did not give up on you and me. To stick in with people, not to throw your hands up and and walk away. And to be governed in our thinking by a desire for their salvation. I will not do this because it might lead her to think that or to do that. I, I will do that for her because I think it might encourage her I don't know, to read the Bible a bit more or, or to, uh, to be more patient. I will go to the shop and buy that old sister who's housebound a big print Bible so that she can read. Yeah, things like that. That's what carrying the cross is all about. That's where our days and minutes and, and hours and months and years and life should go to. Carrying the cross, in all those little undramatic ways when you split them up in themselves. Now, notice that he talks about fulfilling the law of Christ. Chapter 6, verse 2. Now, what that does not mean is that Moses gave us 518 commandments, or whatever it was, and Jesus gave us another set, say 100, or whatever, that you can write down a little, little book and tick them off as you keep them. That would be misunderstanding. The law of Christ is the law which is Christ. What would Jesus do? That's the golden rule, really, for us. The law of Christ, the law which is Christ, means that in everything, in absolutely everything, 24-7, we are thinking, what would he have done if he were standing at a bus stop in the rain, here in Riga. What would he have thought if he 
read that on the internet? How would he have reacted if he, his life intersected with Svetlana, with David, or whoever? That is the law which is Christ. And in a sense, it's far more demanding in, in one sense than, uh, than giving us a list of, of laws to, to fulfill. Now, in chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you led of the spirit, you are not under the law. Or under the flesh, it seems, is what he, he means. So then, he's writing to the Galatians, and he's telling the Galatians the situation as it is with them. He says, in you, the flesh is lusting against the spirit, spirit against the flesh, they're contrary, so that you cannot do the things that you would like to do. It's, you can misread that, I suggest, <clears throat> as him saying, well, we can't be righteous, flesh lusts against the spirit, we can't do what we'd like to do. But he goes on, but, if you're led of the spirit, you're not under the law, and he goes on to say, this is not how it should be with you, and he says, 24, They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the, with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. So, isn't this very similar to something else that Paul wrote? Yes, it is. Romans 7. Romans, it seems, was Paul's first letter. Certainly one of his very early ones. And in Romans 7, he uses such similar language that he must be alluding to it. And it's in this autobiographical section where he talks very deeply and personally about himself. Uh, Romans 7, whole of that last section really, but starting say from 15, he says, what I would, that is what I would like to do, that I don't do, but I do what I hate doing. I do that which I would not, that which I would not like to do. And he says, well, sin dwells in me, and sin does these things. And unfortunately, he says, how to perform that which I would like to do, I don't find. The good that I would like to do, verse 19, I do not, <clears throat> but the evil which I would not like to do, that I do. If I do that which I would not like to do, it's not me that does it, but sin that dwells in me. I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. Same, flesh-spirit conflict. And how does he conclude? O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It seems to me that what he writes there in Romans 7 is very different to what he writes in Galatians 5. He uses the same language, but he applies it to the Galatians and he criticizes them. He says, you cannot do the things that you would like to do. But, but there is another way. If you're led of the Spirit, you are not going to do these things. If you're not trying to keep law, you will live by the Spirit instead. And he says, if you are Christ's, you have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. We walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. Now, what's the, uh, what's the resolution here? Well, I suggest that Paul has matured between Romans 7 and Galatians 5. That in Romans 7 he said, well, it's how I am. 
flesh and spirit locked in conflict. Unfortunately, I can't do what I would like to do. Well, what do I do? I'm a wretched man. I throw myself on Jesus. And I trust to his grace that I will be saved. <clears throat> and insofar as that goes, that's fine. But here in Galatians 5, he's, he's matured. That's what I suggest. And he's saying there is another way. I used to be like that. I think that's what he's implying by his allusion to Romans 7. You Galatians are still like that. But you shouldn't be like that. You can do the things that you would like to do in the Spirit. He's saying, give yourself wholly to walking in the Spirit. Believe the good news of grace that you are saved. That if Jesus comes back right this minute, you can say with humble confidence, I will be there because I believe in his grace. I will be there. I am saved in, in prospect. So therefore, I I'm going to live the life of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, self-control. All those things. Against which he says there is no law. It's not a case of, you know, I must today be more self-controlled. I must today be more humble. He says there's no law that is saying do this or don't do that. He said it's a fruit. See, he contrasts the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the flesh. Fruit and works are slightly different. I think he's saying that the fruit is something that comes naturally. If we really believe this, that we are saved, and I don't know what form of words to use to, to get it to you, but the bottom line is if, if the angel stands in front of us right this minute and says, you know, Jesus has come, go to meet him, that we'll say, wow, I believe that I will be saved. Yep, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've got all my weakness, all my dysfunction, but I believe that I will be there. Great, Jesus has come. Well, if that is our attitude, really, moment by moment, at least subconsciously, I know, I know we've got to think about all the things of this world uh, just to get through life, but if the core principle underneath is that I believe that I am loved by him and I will be saved by his grace, then these things, these fruits, the love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, etc., self-control, this all comes as a fruit, as a natural growth in human personality. It's absolutely wonderful. And Paul has got here, as I say, by some personal development, because he, he's now ahead of where he was in Romans 7. As I say, what's said in Romans 7 is not untrue. If you kind of don't get there, if you don't get to that level and you're still, oh dear, wretched man that I am, flesh and spirit keep uh, fighting and the flesh always seems to win, wretched man that I am, well, I throw myself on God's grace, and it's, I do believe his grace is wonderful. Yeah, okay, that's one level to live on. And that's the level that Paul was on. But here he's gone somewhere higher. So then he says, 5 verse 24, They that are Christ's, that is those that are in Christ, who are truly identified with him. That's what baptism was all about, wasn't it? Sharing in his death and resurrection. They have crucified the flesh. Well, who crucified the flesh? Not you and me, we're so weak. Uh, but Jesus did. We are to see in him there, our flesh, dead. It's like he was like the, the snake that was lifted up in the wilderness. The, the bronze snake, if you like, a dead snake. Sin, dead. The flesh crucified, as Paul says here. And we look to that bronze snake, like we look to, the, uh, to Jesus in his time of dying, and we believe that really there... That was my flesh. He was my representative. 
Not in that sense substitute, but representative. That was my flesh. That was all my sin, weakness, lusts. All those weaknesses that we have, dead. And if we believe that we are in Christ, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, if we believe that our baptism was for real, that there, yes, I was buried with him, I died with him, buried with him, rose again with him, then this is true for you and me. Now, of course, there's another sense in which crucifying the flesh is ongoing. Just here in chapter 6, verse 14, he says, Therefore I glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom or in whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. That the world, the flesh, all the, the glitter and razzmatazz and temptations of this world are in an ongoing sense being crucified in our experience. Chapter, chapter 2, still here in, uh, in Galatians, chapter 2 verse, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. If righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. You know, if you got your piece of paper with all the things you've got to do and not do, and that's your basis of uh, justification before God, then Christ is dead in vain. And by doing that, he says, we frustrate the grace of God. So then we might think that that's a pretty tough thing to say, that we frustrate the grace of God. I think people would say, if they believe in keeping all these laws to be saved, they, they wouldn't like to say that. They wouldn't like to say, well, okay, I'm going to frustrate God's grace. But as so often in the Bible, we're being told effectively, de facto, if that's your attitude, this is what it means to God. It's like Old Testament says to, to, to Judah and to Israel, you're being like a prostitute to God. You're like you're married to God and you're off there flirting with other men. Oh, no, don't talk to me like that. I'm, I'm not a prostitute. I'm not that sort of person. And he, you know, Jeremiah's on about there and Ezekiel, you, you're worse than a prostitute. You're paying men. No, I, I'm not such a person. I might sin a bit, but I'm not such a person. Yes, you are. That's the whole point of the shocking language. To get us to jump up out of our seat and say, what is that, me? And if we're humble to God's word, yes, that is. Every time we sin, every time we, we breach our covenant of faithfulness to God, that's what we're doing. And again, there is another example, chapter 6, verse 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. Now, we know that. What you sow is what you're going to reap. Not in this life, we're told, or we see, that the wicked are often prosperous and the righteous suffer. But, all the same, what a man sows, he will reap. When? At the harvest, which is when Jesus comes back. Now, we know that. That whatever we sow in this life is like a little corn, a little seed that is going to grow up and, and turn into something much bigger at the day of judgment. Now we know that, theoretically, but we don't always live according to that principle. And he says, if you don't do that, you're just deceived and you're mocking God. I don't think there's any of us, certainly no one here, and probably very few people in the world who are reading what Galatians 6 is saying, who would say, ah oh, yeah, I, I mock God. 
No, that's a tiny minority of humanity who would ever say, yeah, I'm going to mock God. But it says that that's what you're doing. You who call yourself Christians, you who are reading Galatians 6 verse 7, that's what you're doing. You're mocking God if you think that you can sow and not reap the result of it when Jesus comes back. Now, we don't like to be told that. We would all admit that, yeah, there are times when I I don't live by that principle. There's times when I waste my life, my time, my money, my health on things that are are not really going to get me anywhere. Um, And there are times when I, I know I could give more of myself, of my money, of my heart, of everything in me to God. I could do that. Uh, more, and I know I should because it will all have its wonderful harvest when Jesus comes back, but unfortunately I don't. Unfortunately I spend my money on this or on that, or my time on surfing the internet or, or wasting my time on this, that or the other. Yeah, we'd say yes, yes, I, I admit that, that I don't always live that kind of life in every area of my life. But if you say, okay, so then you're mocking God, you say, I'm not mocking God, I'm just a little bit weak. Well, that's what he says here, that God is being mocked if you don't live according to that principle. And, you know, we're living in a postmodern world where it's sort of flat emotions, where you just exist rather than than live. And uh, you don't show any great passion about anything, at least not very publicly. You just exist, you do your job, you try and get as much money as you can for yourself and you try to tickle your taste buds as nicely as you can and buy the coolest clothes that you can and you have a nice holiday, a nice place to live, a nice car, and nice holidays and, and stuff like that. that. That's the bottom line. And, and uh, just keep everything on a, a level, don't uh, get too crazy about anything, don't get addicted to drugs, don't uh, d- d- just uh, you know, don't do anything that's too bad for your health. Uh, just uh, just to be medium, just be balanced. Uh, and uh, this whole idea that, well, if you don't live according to this principle you, uh, of what you sow is what you reap, you're mocking God. Oh, no, 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 no that is not quite the case. Don't, don't interrupt my, my nice little comfortable little church-going life with that sort of thing. That's for the world. That's for the uh, atheists and that's for the blasphemers out there. Oh, it's not talking about me. But, yes, it is. It's like, you know, as I say, with Judah and Israel, what's this Jeremiah and Ezekiel telling us that we're a bunch of whores? No, you're crazy, man. We're just decent guys just doing our thing, and, yeah, well, we worship a few idols, but uh, that's life, that's how it is. And, yeah, no, we love God. What do you mean? We we love Yahweh, we go to the temple, we we do the sacrifice. What what are you talking about? And this is where, you know, the, the Bible, this little book, this blank print on white paper, should take a grip and, and the ideas and the feelings should come jumping out of that blank print on white paper and take a grip on a man or woman's life. So then, we come back to the challenge of what he's saying here. That we will be saved by grace. And Jesus died for us so that we should know for sure that this is for real. When we talked about Genesis 15 a while ago, we talked about the covenant of grace. 
And we talked about why Jesus died, and of course it's sort of multifactorial, but I suggested that one of the reasons he died was to commend God's love to us, as if his love needs any commendation. But it obviously does, because we're so dumb. He died, Jesus died, in that very public, very awful way that he did. I think to, partly to give us the message for sure that God is for real about this, that really it's all true, and that we will be saved, and that he who spared not his own son, as Paul says, shall he not freely give us all things? In other words, it was harder for God to give his son to die than it is for God to say, okay, Duncan, you, you can go into the kingdom. It was far harder for him to give his son than to sort of wave me through into the kingdom. So if he's given us his son, how much more, and this is a sort of game of logic that Paul plays, but all quite legitimate, how much more certain can we be that we really will be saved? And so that's why Paul concludes that in verse 14. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gloried in this. He thought it was wonderful. And so should we.